Black History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. The WNBA is in its 25th season, a historic mark for a league that started as basically the little sister to its male counterpart back in the late 90s. I figured we'd take a couple looks from different angles at where the league is now entering its playoffs. The undefeated Darren Dotson and Nick DePaula, two sneakerheads covering the culture, have a great story about the nine original members of the league who rose to the ranks of getting their own signature shoes and what that's like to look back on now. I talked to them about the process of putting together that piece. Secondly, I sat down with Camille Buxita, director of W Slam. Last week, they printed their first ever physical magazine a few years after launching their brand. Her love of hoops is lifelong, and the project to her represents not just how far we've come, but how far we can go. Lastly, a young woman's death while hiking with her boyfriend has made headlines across America this week. But where is this kind of attention when black girls go missing? Oh, that's right. Dawn Staley is a basketball legend a Hall of Famer as a player. She's currently the head coach of the South Carolina Gamecocks, where she's won a national championship and Coach of the Year awards. But herself, the North Philly native, was also a two-time College Player of the Year and six-time NBA All-Star. Here's a snippet from her interview about the Nike Zoom S5s. It was super cool to actually be approached because you, you know, I don't, I mean, I, some giving your signature shoe is something that was so far-fetched. <laughs> It was, it was, it was not even a, a thought, you know, like you have goals of winning the, uh, you know, winning the national championship or being an Olympian and winning the gold medal. Those are goals that you've seen uh, growing up. I didn't really see a, I didn't really see a, a woman with a signature shoe. And then Michael Jordan didn't become Michael Jordan until way after you know, way after my college career. Uh, so I, to be approached in that way and not just because when Nike does things, they don't just say, hey, we're going to put your name on this shoe. They're like, hey, we want some input. <laughs> you know, how you like this? How you like that? How you like this? What you know, what do you think about this? They want input. And I, you know, I just thought it was super cool. You, you have that that connection to the shoe that actually you're wearing and you're, you know, you're promoting. Cheryl Swoops is royalty on the court. Another Hall of Famer, the Texas native is a three-time WNBA MVP and four-time champion. The story of the origins of the Nike Air Swoops is one to hear for yourself. But I always knew what was important to me in a shoe, um, and that was the feel of the shoe. I wanted a shoe to be comfortable, not heavy, which most men's shoes I played in were heavy. Um, it had to have really good ankle support because my ankles were really weak. Um, and I wanted it to look good. So it was very simple, right? Look good, great ankle support, not heavy. Um, and they said, okay, that's important. And they said, well, we're thinking about designing a women's basketball shoe. That's why we kind of wanted your input. And I thought that was like the coolest. I thought that was the best. The fact that they're going to design a women's shoe, like they see the need for it. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then it went from that conversation to, and we're thinking about naming it um, after you. It still didn't hit me. Even hearing that, I was like, oh, like I didn't know what that meant, right? Um, and then they said, we're thinking about calling it the Nike Air Swoops. In that moment, I lost it. I, I, I screamed. I jumped up. Um, for, for a minute, I was just quiet. Like I was speechless. 
because I was like, I heard it, but I didn't hear it. And so after that initial shock, then I, I screamed, I jumped up and down, I cried. I asked him several times, like, like, what does that mean? You know, because I, 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 for me, I was never the, the kid that grew up saying someday I'm going to have my own shoe. That just wasn't something, wasn't something I thought was even possible. So to be in that moment, um, knowing that they Nike was about to design a women's shoe and then call it the Nike Air Swoops. Um, that was a pretty special moment for me. And even to this day, when I talk about it, I'm just not doing it right now. I actually get emotional when I talk about it. And when I think about it, because I, I also understand like how big of a moment that was, not just for me, but for so many young girls and women coming up after me. Joining us right now, we've got two people that are heavy in the game the sneaker game some people act like they got nice kicks some people know what they look at some people like to see him on tv other people actually know what they're talking about nick DePaul is one aaron dotson's the other both of them from the undefeated thank you gentlemen for joining me today what's up bro thanks for having us definitely yeah man so the story that we're talking about here is one you guys put together that involves telling the story of the WNBA through sneakers. This is important because, first of all, the WNBA, I think, in 2021 is kind of finally getting their cultural relevance props in a way that we haven't seen before. The basketball discussion is always a different one, but people recognize that these athletes are stars and what they do has been moving the needle for a long time. So what you guys did was you broke down the nine signature series shoes from WNBA athletes. I'm going to start off with this question, and Nick, you can start here. Where did y'all get the idea for this story overall? Never mind what you executed. Yeah, it probably started, I would say, January or February. Um, we were just looking ahead, and I think the biggest thing was knowing that it was the 25th anniversary season. Um, so just because of the, the historical nature of it, also with the, with the Olympic team, we knew they were going to be wearing the, those 96 Olympic uniforms as kind of a tribute. Right. And when you look at that 96 Olympic team, I mean, Aaron had really done the research and found out that every woman on that team had a footwear endorsement deal. And a lot of the women from that team are the ones that became the first handful of signature athletes. So it just seemed like a great starting point and something I want to put together. Yeah, so Nick and I actually, you know, in February for Black History Month, we did a story on the top black women in footwear. And one of the important people on that list was Cheryl Swoops, who was the first um, women's player and in, in the history of sports to ever get her own sneaker. So, you know, in the industry, in the WNBA, you know, it was kind of like this question of who's going to be the next WNBA player to get her own sneaker. Um, that was, you know, a question that, you know, Nick and I talked a lot about. We had talked um, to a lot of people in the industry about it. And we kind of wanted to take a look back at all the women, you know, who had previously gotten a sneaker because, you know, nobody has r really ever written about them in a, in a comprehensive, yeah. you know, format. So um, fortunately, we were able to um, track down, you know, eight out of the nine women uh, on the list and, and speak to them about, you know, what that moment meant to them to get their own sneaker and, you know, to kind of spin it forward. And it's kind of funny, um, you know, when we were actually first working on the story, uh, there was only nine. And then as we were, were, were reporting on the story, and Nick, you can touch uh, on this, uh, Puma actually announced that, you know, they were going to make Brianna Stewart the next signature athlete. And, you know, Nick was on the, on the ground level of reporting and breaking that story. So it was kind of cool to, you know, to, to be reporting and, you know, 
it, it'd be fluid and you know our story kind of changed while we were working on it so that was that was kind of cool that's tight man that's a real thrill like i mean you know what i mean you get into this business you get to cover things you like and something like that happens and it's it's definitely very fulfilling yo i'm glad you shared that with us nick what to, sp to speak to what he was saying i mean like when she got her deal announced, what did it tell you in terms of what you've seen, like sort of separately about where where this had all come? Yeah, it was interesting because we had probably done half the interviews by then. So the last question for each of, of the people was who should be the 10th? And then it was the second week of May uh, before the season when Puma signed Stewie. And as part of that deal, they were they were giving her that shoe. But it was interesting, too, because I was talking when I talked to Brianna, like she didn't even know that there had only been nine women. She couldn't name all of them. You know, she had been with Nike before, but the last Nike signature shoe was 2006. Mm. Um, so it's so it's been a while. So I think the biggest takeaway for that was just, you know, Puma's coming back into basketball since 2018 here. And they know that to make an impact, like let's let's honor a player who's been a finals MVP, a player who's won, you know, each year in college and is and is probably one of the, the best women's players in the game. Um, let's give her her due justice and, and give her a signature shoe. It's been a full decade since the last one. So I think from Puma's standpoint, you know, that was a huge move. And, and it, I think, just kind of speaks to the, the energy around the league right now. Clint Yates, Black History Always, Nick DePaula, Aaron Dotson joining us. Headline, the complete history of signature sneakers in the WNBA. The deck, since the league's debut 25 years ago, nine women have laced up a shoe bearing their name. Here are their stories. It's a tremendous breakdown that goes back through sort of the cultural zeitgeist moments as well that we sort of covered over the years with female athletes and particularly women's basketball players. In addition, it had been a long time since I remembered the WNBA Little Rascals commercials. Give me to Leslie. Center. L.A. Sparks. Yeah. New sure. York is going to shut you down. Unless. New York's going to what? I said unless. Here, try these tomorrow night. What's this? It's what's going to get you over the hump against New York. What? Use those in the second half. Catch them off guard. I'll show these to coach. Whatever suits yourself. Just a little friendly advice. Those joints were tight. <laughs> I definitely watched all of them. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Talk to me about that, Aaron, just in terms of uncovering some of those little gems that people sort of forgot about that were also touchstones, not just the sneakers, but the things around them from the culture of the game standpoint. Yeah, so one of the signature athletes that I had the privilege of interviewing for this story was Cynthia Cooper. She was actually the um, – she was the – in the first four seasons of the WNBA, she was the MVP of the league. Um, so she was a huge star. And it, it's kind of her story is interesting in that, you know, she entered the league as a 34 year old rookie. Right. Um, but she got a deal with Nike and she was such a, you know, a force in the league that, you know, Nike kind of felt that they had to give her her own shoe. So she actually headlined a shoe by the name of the Nike Air Shake Em Up. And a lot of people thought that that was her own shoe. She mm -hmm. kind of considered that her own shoe. So she actually, you know, filmed with her teammate, T Tina Thompson, and they filmed a little Rastles commercial featuring a young Kyler Pratt. And, you know, I'm with you. I love those commercials, Clinton. And, you know, when I got a chance to speak to her, that was my last question. I was like, you know, <laughs> Cynthia, I got to ask you before we go, like, you know, what, what was it like, you know, <laughs> filming with a young Kyler Pratt? And she was, you know, she... Uh, let out this big laugh and she was saying you know the one thing that I'll tell you is 
is Kyler Pratt was really acting. She she was, <laughs> you know, she was really giving it to me. She was like, I was like, little girl, like, <laughs> you're not about to be talking to me like that. Hey, Cynthia, think you'll make MVP again this year? I'm going to try. I'd have to say no. Excuse me? No sneaking up second time around. Sneaking up? Tell her, Tina. Don't be afraid, Tina. Coop needs to know. But yeah, I mean, that, that was just such a huge, uh, you know, era for the WNBA. And you saw, you know, kind of Nike try to promote uh, its products on these WNBA athletes in, in fun ways. And, you know, that was a, a way in which they did it with, with Cynthia Cooper, with Lisa Leslie, with, with Cheryl Swoops, with Don Staley, that first group of Nike athletes who endorsed the brand in the WNBA. I got to say, the reason that that ad is so cool, too, is because it showed not just sort of the real star power of WNBA basketball players, but it showed sort of generationally different, like, yo, of course girls play basketball, of course women play basketball, but they're not all nice, you know what I'm saying? And you can deal with that, you know what I mean? Like, it was a very kind of humanizing thing, I think, for a lot of girls who played at that time, who were younger, because, you know, I think my age, I'm 40, was first when, you know, it wasn't remotely uncommon for most of your peers as a guy that was an athlete to have girls that did all of the same things, you know what I'm saying, in terms of age groups. And so I remember those ads being like, those are cool, you know what I mean? And so I really appreciate that part of the story. Nick, what do you remember from just the things that, you know, obviously that came up to you that you'd got to touch on going back in time in terms of what putting this to get story together was? I remember being a size 13 in seventh grade and not being able to get any of them. Because <laughs> um, I always joke, like, I'm still looking for a pair of the Zoom S5s in a women's 14 and a half, and it's been a 20-plus year hunt, so we'll <laughs> see how that goes. But I think that was, to me, the biggest thing was, you know, in speaking to a lot of the women and, and, and seeing how involved they were in the design and the input they had, a lot of the things we heard was that they didn't want just a white and pink shoe. They wanted it to be black, white, and red, or, you know, a certain color of their team color. And they wanted it to still look tough and strong and not, you know, just kind of soft in that regard. And so as somebody that was super into shoes at the time back then too, um, I, that was one of the things I remember was seeing all that stuff in East Bay, seeing them at the stores. Like it was a women's shoe that also all the guys wanted. And I think that spoke to a lot of success early on of, of all the Nike signatures and, and was probably a credit of theirs to, you know, making sure they gave the gave the women, you know, the, their due justice to get a, a shoe that was not only a great design, but had all the same technology that the men's shoes had as well. We're kind of getting off into deeper waters here, but you brought it up and I want to talk about it, which is, you know, the whole notion of guys buying women's shoes, air quotes here. And a more general question I have is like, what? How much longer is the sneaker industry going to bother with separately gendered colorways? I mean, just as kind of a thing, like, you know, because I know most people know that if you want to get something to color, there's no shame in buying a, a, a woman's shoe or anything like that, but they're still doing it. And I think about this all the time as to why the colorways haven't been sort of degendered ever. And I, this is sort of unimportant. This might not even make the actual pod, but I do want to know what you think about that just overall. Yeah, I think it was the LeBron 16 and... I think Kyrie five and and some of the shoes from that, like 2018 era where um, Nike started putting both men's and women's sizes on the boxes. And then a lot of the other brands followed suit, but um, you know, it's still a lot of the women's shoes. They only go up to size 12. I thought that was one thing interesting talking to Nikki McRae, who had a shoe with Fila is she was adamant that her shoe come in both men's sizes and women's sizes, mm. so, which was, I think one of the only cases of, of the women's signature shoes that came like that. Um, but it's it's something we're seeing more brands do. Um, you know, some of the women that are 
headlining shoes now, you know, they're trying to make sure it goes up to a men's 13 or is at least accessible. I know that was something big for Candace Parker with her new Adidas project that's launching uh, at the end of September here. So I think it's, I think it's coming around, but um, you know, back then at least that definitely wasn't the case. So, so one of the coolest, you know, sort of anecdotes or stories that, you know, I got out of reporting on this story was talking to Don Staley um, when Nike was designing her shoe, they actually sent her a prototype of it. And she, you know, she grew up in North Philly. She actually took the prototype to a basketball court, to the blacktop of a basketball court and was showing it to, to all the dudes in the neighborhood. And, you know, it's still to this day. And, you know, like Nick said, like that's one of the shoes that's on his list that he's been trying to track down for his entire life. Right. And so to this day, you know, she's adamant about the fact that like she really thinks that her shoe doesn't look like a woman's shoe. And she is adamant about the fact that like she thought that like dudes could wear her shoes, too. And, you know, she, right. she thought that was super cool and, and a huge part of, you know, like Nick said, like what Nikki McRae wanted out of hers, you know, she wanted that crossover aspect of her sneaker. And I think that, you know, the Nike Zoom S5, you know, was that. Aaron yeah, Dotson, Nick, oh, my bad, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I was, I saw Candace last week in Chicago and she was breaking down how the ACE logo that she uses is, yes, it's the last three letters of her name, but she was also saying how it's not a queen, it's not a king. It's about, you know, being a human. And, and that's one thing that she's really trying to, to push forward with her series as well is just having it be something that anybody could find accessible. Aaron Dotson, Nick DePaula, Black History Always, Clinton Yates here from The Undefeated. We're talking about the WNBA and signature sneakers. This is interesting to me because I think also on, on sort of a different level, I, I think the, the sneaker game has led to a lot of, how do I explain this kindly, otherwise dumbass dudes respecting the women's game for a different reason in terms of an entry point to why we celebrate female athletes the way that we do at this stage. This is what I'm getting at. So for you guys to see, obviously you're connected to the sports and the things on a different level from a fashion standpoint, but as fans of sports, how cool is it for you all to see these, these, these athletes, these women sort of getting their props these days in terms of where they belong in the overall ecosystem, in terms of what they're achieving and how they're motivating and influencing. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the signature shoe piece is, is slowly picking up and we're seeing like we're like I said with Puma and Stewie coming around but I think another big piece this season was the jersey overhaul you know they put the numbers on the front of the jerseys which hasn't happened in a handful of years so you know you're starting to see the the individual marketing and the individual star power really be supported and and um you know we saw we went from I think 40 national tv games to 100 this season mm -hmm. um so there's been a lot of different kind of metrics and things that the league has really picked up on to to try to promote it even better. And, and I think that's really been seen given that the 25th anniversary season, um, just for me, anecdotally, just seemed like it had just a lot more interest and excitement around it all summer. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know, like Nick said, the, the signature sneaker piece is one thing, but I just think in general, women, especially the WNBA, are getting more opportunities to partner with footwear companies. Uh, earlier this season, we saw that the Jordan brand announced its largest women's roster in history. There are 11 WNBA players repping the brand in the league, and all of them are black women. Hmm. And I think that was intentional, you know, on the part of the brand. And it, it was just kind of cool. There's this really, if you, you guys should look it up, it's, it's this really cool portrait that they did of all of those athletes with Michael Jordan. It was just a super powerful image. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, it's just refreshing to see that, you know, 
obviously there should be, you know, at least in my opinion, there should be more uh, WNBA players to get their own signatures, but it is kind of refreshing to see, you know, brands taking chances and, you know, allowing them to, to, to partner uh, with their companies and, you know, putting them at the forefront of their, their marketing and branding. Who do y'all think this is the last thing I'll ask you? Well, the second last thing I'll ask you, who do y'all think is going to be the next sort of breakout star star in the WNBA? And I don't just mean on the court. I mean, like, you know, popular vote, if you will, in terms of people who are like, I know who that woman is. She plays basketball. I think they're both at UConn. Okay. Yeah. Paige Buckets? I say Daisy Fudd and Paige, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think they both kind of um, bring a little, a little bit different in terms of their game and their personality. And, you know, Paige has a lot of flair. And Daisy's just a great scorer. But uh, I think both of them are going to be super, you know, relatable for a lot of young girls and also really embrace that responsibility. And, and you know, they're excited to, to take part in, I think, a lot of the marketing that they're going to have ahead of them. So, um, you know, we'll see where they end up team wise. I think that's the one thing that's tough, too, is the WNBA. They have to play three years in college before they could be eligible for the draft. So Paige was a star out the gate at UConn. Right. And we've got to wait for her to hit the league. But I think when they're when their day is ready, they'll be they'll be the stars for sure. That are next up. Aaron? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Paige is like, you know, and, and then also in talking to, uh, you know, the eight women that we were able to speak to former signature athletes, you know, a lot of them said Paige. It's, it's kind of hard not to, <laughs> to say that answer just because of, you know, how big of a freshman season she had at UConn and then just also how big of a social following uh, she has. And, you know, she seems to have been, you know, in the limelight since she was, you know, maybe a sophomore or junior. I've been watching her mixtape since she was in 10th grade. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Straight up. Yeah. So, you know, she kind of seems like, you know, the athlete, um, you know, the women's player that brands are going to be all going after. Yeah, and then I would say the other one that sticks out too that a lot of the the women we interviewed talked about and mentioned was Asia Wilson. Yeah, I think her personality and she's to me she's one of the funniest people to follow on <laughs> on all her uh, social channels and she's just hilarious. But also she's dominant on the floor, so I, I think she's one that you know we've seen her headline the Cosmic Unity and a couple shoes for Nike, uh, the Dap BB as well. But um, I I could see her being incorporated into stuff even more so going forward. Well, gentlemen, keep up the good work. I enjoyed the story very much, and I hope that you guys got out of it what you wanted. You know what I mean? Sometimes getting players to talk about old stuff isn't easy because you never really know where the story went or how it happened. But in this case, you did a good job, so I appreciate it. Yeah, this this one was great because every single woman had just incredibly detailed memories of all the moments, whether it was like if you asked each person the first time they wore the shoe – it was like a 15 minute answer and, and just like every like, you know, opening the box and seeing their name on the shoe label, putting the lacing them up in the locker room, like just every detail was amazing. So um, it was great because I think in some cases it's been more than 20 years and maybe they feel like people forgot that they had one or they, you know, aren't getting that appreciation. So it was cool too, to make sure that we recognized all of them um, for all the impact they had back in the day. Like history, always the podcast.
Welcome back to Black History Always. My name is Clinton Yates of The Undefeated. With us right now is Camille Buxita. She is, you know what? I'm going to let you tell everybody who you are because while you are <laughs> well known in some circles, it's been a big week for you. I followed you on IG for a while. Please explain to the people what you do and who you are. Um, quick side note, I'm a huge fan of yours. So when I got the <laughs> IG follow, you know, I was freaking out. I'm like Thank texting you. my dad, like, oh my God. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so my name's Camille. Uh, I am the director, creative director of W Slam, the women's basketball vertical here at Slam Magazine. Well, it's now Slam Media Inc. You just put out an issue, the first had an incredible cover. It was a big deal for a lot of people. It felt like a moment that was a long time coming for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that. But let's start here. Who are you? How did you get to this point? And what was your path? Because I think a lot of what we try to do here on this show is mm -hmm. connect people to understand that a lot of these roles and a lot of these gigs and a lot of these outward facing positions that people employ or people are employed in they are reachable you know what i'm saying in terms of the path so i'm asking yeah. you yours yeah um so originally i was born and raised in puerto rico um my dad played professional basketball in puerto rico for many years um many years before i was born he's older sorry dad <laughs> um, but uh so i always had a love for the game through him um i moved to florida when i was pretty young um, or about six or seven. And I continued loving basketball from afar. I kind of did it more as a hobby than like a legitimate career. And then I did the same thing, you know, throughout college, but I was just a pure lover of basketball, like, you know, men's women's level, all levels. I, I truly just really loved appreciating the game for what it was. And like, building my skill set and knowing how to, you know, decipher games too. That was always really fun to me. And so I found a lot of joy uh, throughout that. And so I didn't think it was a career path for a really long time, actually. And so it's funny you talk about, you know, these paths are reachable. I had no idea this was a path mm. for me. I, I was pre-med for three years. I thought I was going to be a doctor. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, that changed. Right. <laughs> um, but so it was one of those things where I, I did it, you know, as a passion on the side and, you know, slowly yet surely, especially toward the end of uh, my college experience, I was like, wow, you know, I think there is a world in which I make this a career. Um, and I was lucky enough to be accepted into NYU's master's program for sports business. Um, and I did my master's program there and I interned at the garden with the Nixon Liberty, uh, okay. I did some other freelancing opportunities, which then landed me uh, a job at the NBA on the WNBA side, um, for about a year. And then slam found me and it was a lot of convincing. Cause I felt like I had reached the pinnacle, you know, joining the league, the league is the pinnacle when right. you're young and you've grown up watching it. Um, but you know, the, the team and what everything slam has meant to the game of basketball for so many years really spoke to me and, and their vision really spoke to me. So I um, was really fortunate to be offered the position to start up their women's vertical. And, and I've been here two and a half years and it's a, it's a blessing. It's so many things. And um, I'm very excited to be in the position I'm at and now creating magazine, which was nothing I expected to be doing. So. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I get that. That's kind of why I asked as well, is that some people are very driven, not that you weren't driven, but you know, your drive takes you towards different paths and which one mm. you choose is always interesting. But some people also end up doing things that they never thought that they would be doing. And the reason I say that is because I see a lot of y'all basketball influencers out here. I don't see y'all <laughs> on the courts at the actual games. 
I just yeah. see you on your phones. And that's something mm-hmm. that I want to ask you about. You know, did you play or like you talked about how you love the level love the game at all levels. That's kind of how I am for baseball. Yeah. It doesn't matter who's playing or where. I love it. You know, what is to you your sort of I don't want to say your main imprint, but like what 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 is what is the basketball world that you know best when it comes to that kind of stuff? Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, I, my mom is four, five, one. Um, <laughs> I was four foot nine going into high school. Um, basketball was not the cards. <laughs> I couldn't pull off my, my Nate Robinson, my, you right. know, I was literally like five foot one graduating high school. Okay. There was just no getting past that. So I really just loved it from afar and, and I, I covered it. So I, yeah. I started covering it more. So when I was at um, Florida state, I'm just like, again, for fun standpoint, I did football and basketball, both men's and women's. And then I did a little bit of baseball, which by the way, my dad used to take me to Expos games wow. when they still came to Puerto Rico. Wow. So, <laughs> I know when they existed and came to Puerto Rico, that's, that's uh, a while ago. Yeah. Been a minute. Exactly. Um, and so I, that was kind of my draw. It was the game itself. I, yeah. I, I didn't fall in love fully with how much intersection the game has until a little bit later. And that's really where my draw to slam started coming in. Right. Mm. Like I just started covering the game or loving the game. And that's what I, you know, I really took as, as my calling. And then um, I really loved the way slam covered basketball um, at its intersections and what these players um, and, and, and they've covered the women's game from the jump. I mean, right. I know it, it's not as expansive as it should have been, but they've always covered it. And so I just loved the way that they, you know, told stories about humans, not athletes. Um, and that was my favorite part about it. And that's kind of what has always drawn me into to staying. I'm a storyteller at heart. That's what I love to do. Camille Buxita joins us here on Black History Always. My name is Clinton Yates from The Undefeated. I want to dive into that. When did this issue that just came out from a journalistic standpoint take me through that process? I know there's a lot, but, you know, as best you can from sort of start to not finish, but from start to launch uh, in terms of the issue. You know, where, where did this start? What were some of your original ideas versus what you ended up with? How difficult was a task for this of this for you to tackle overall? Yeah, um, you know, I'm I'm very blessed to to work with so many incredible creatives at Slam that have been there for 10, 15 years plus. It's a very tight-knit family. So when I joined, there was always a vision of doing a magazine at one point. Um, at what point that would be, we didn't know. I think we wanted to do it probably a year prior, but COVID kind of unfortunately set us yeah. back um, in a timeline phase. But I think in uh, to a blessing in, in disguise, right? Because I think it allowed us to not only grow, you know, W Slam's footprint in women's basketball as a whole, um, but I think it allowed us to really debut this at a moment that is so spectacular. It's 25th anniversary, the longest withstanding women's basketball professional league. Um, and so I knew um, coming into it, what I wanted to do. Like, and so, and that was the other beauty of it, right? Like they said, okay, we want to do a magazine. And then they came to me, what do we do? Mm. So um, yes. again, for someone who I, I started in content and development, I, I, you know, print was not necessarily my forte, but everyone I work with is what they've been doing for 20 plus years. So um, it was really exciting. And I know for me, the number one goal was celebrate 25 years, but also look forward to the next 25. Mm. Because, you know, when we start talking about the WNBA and growing it, you got to look forward, right? We have had some incredible players that is not, you know, 
it is that is easily told and incredible players that have made a lasting impact in the last 10 years or right. 12 years, however long. Um, but we really wanted to look forward to the next 25. And so um, that's what the journey for the cover was, right? Was how do we take three players that I predict and I think to be some of the next faces of the next 25 years, but also pay homage to the last 25. So I really wanted this TLC, Fuji's, you know, album cover style. What's up, y'all? I'm Diamond the Shields. I'm Ariki Ogunbowale. And I am Benajelani, and we are here shooting our W Slam cover. We have Chloe Jackson, who's a former NCAA champion, a former WNBA player, come and actually style it. How old were you <laughs> when the WNBA first started? So I, I was, was two. Yeah. Just being born. I was born in 97, though. Yeah, I was two. Um, we were so fortunate to get Raven Verona, who is just a phenomenal photographer who's shot everything in the past two months, it feels like, from the Met to the VMAs yeah. to Natalia Bryant's um, Teen Vogue cover. She's been doing everything. So it was just a phenomenal group of people that came together and execute. I think, you know, when you're in the thick of it, I, I've said it before, I couldn't almost think about the pressure of knowing that this was the first ever because um, it, it gets to you. Yeah, It gets, it's, it's scary. It's, you know, you want it to be so perfect that you get too enveloped in it. Um, but I was so fortunate to have, like I mentioned, so many incredible creatives around me who, who really just stepped up and worked together to make this, I would say, a historic cover, a historic issue. From the standpoint of the game and the sport overall, especially the women's side of the game, mm. 2020 was perhaps more devastating because that was really going to be the big launch. You know what I mean? Like it was when it sort of felt like for the first time in my life that the WNBA was, I don't want to say getting the respect it deserves, but the hype made sense. And mm -hmm. then boom, the season falls out. Just being around that world, how difficult was mm -hmm. that with that and the wobble in terms of the, the relationships you had with people and how that, I don't want to say changed things, but it was a blow momentum yeah. wise to what the effort is. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I agree. It, it felt like we were coming to this point, like, you know, the momentum was there where it was really going to take off. Um, I, I like to always look at the positive. And so I do think while it was not what we had hoped or had thought it would look like 2020 was still a very pivotal year um, for the WNBA uh, more off the court, you know, these women took their power, the power in their hands and, and changed outcomes of elections. They came together to really lead the path and how leagues can execute ideate and execute uh, from a social justice standpoint and everything they did with Breonna Taylor's family, mm. um, everything that they did um, surrounding Jacob Blake's murder. I think they really showed their influence off and away from the game in 2020, which while that's not what we expected that year to look like, it was phenomenal to see and witness and, and just from afar, I mean, be awestruck by how incredible these women are. And I think I'm, I was just very grateful that the rest of the world was able to see that, um, that they are, I think one of the, they are the most influential people, voices in when it comes to um, really ideating and executing and really taking the power in their hands and, and changing things for the better. Black history, always Clinton Yates, Camille Buxedo. We're here from the undefeated. I, I think one of the things that has impressed me is probably not the right word, but one of the things I like the most about the WNBA is that 
for whatever reason, there used to be sort of a notion that like, okay, if you were in the WNBA, it meant you were just a really good basketball player or mm. it meant you were like some major hoop head. But now I think the WNBA athletes are getting their props as just, I don't want to say this, but just celebrities that are cool mm. in the universe. And that's okay for me. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a level of humanization that we often don't give female athletes. They either have to be the most excellent at their sport without any regard for anything else, or mm. people look at them as Barbie dolls on some level. The WNBA has managed to completely reform that and not necessarily just from a point of super seriousness. You know, there's a lot of fun players in the league from a personality standpoint that I think mm. a lot of leagues wish they had never mind just other you know sort of other sort of sports across the board i really am i really enjoy that element of the game which is something you guys highlight at w slam appreciate it yeah and i think that's again a culmination of the point we're at right um it, it sports is a microcosm of society and where we're at right i think that's kind of something that we always utilize as as a method and and there's always been i mean i don't want to say uh an intolerance? What's a good word? Um, maybe there's a bet. I'm trying to think of best way to phrase it, but there hasn't been a, a willingness to fully accept women as a whole outside of what, you know, society has been for the last hundred years. We saw the women's movement in 2017 really change that obviously in the seventies and now in, in 2017 really, really changed that. And, and that's a culmination and, and the level of celebrity that they're at and getting the respect that they fully deserve, you know, both on and off court is a culmination of all of that. So, um, you know, hopefully, and I think we are getting to a place where that's completely changing. It's no longer like, this is just a moment. Um, right. but, um, it's really, it's been really incredible to witness for sure. Cause like you mentioned, these are women, these women are no longer like women's sports celebrities, they're celebrities full stop. And that's, you know, where it should be. And where it's, you know, hopefully we'll go from now on in a little bit more delicate manner, but something I think you can address from your position portrayal is something that has been very difficult I think with mm. the WNBA in terms of I don't want to go so far as to say erasure of black women from a star mm. standpoint but the biggest and brightest spots oftentimes highlight things that some people look at and say that's not quite it I'm not asking you to speak yeah. on what anybody else does but I would like to know your mindset in terms of what it takes to recenter black women and blackness in what is such a vital part of basketball in terms of how you represent the part of the world that you know best. How do you balance that responsibility? Oh man, I think it's, it, it's something that, you know, on, and I'll admit it to my own shortcoming. It's not something I recognized in the very beginning when I took this job, right? Mm. I, I kind of, I took this job a little blind or not blind. I just, you know, you wanted to do it. It was there and you felt yes. you could. Yeah, exactly. And so as time has gone, I've, I've understood the the real responsibility that myself and every media member has, especially on the national scale, um, because you're right. The opportunities have gone to the same five to six players um, from a coverage standpoint. Right. So yeah. that was what was so vital to me, especially with this magazine was, I don't want to do this, you know, let's start looking forward. Let's start looking. And not only that, but to the black women that have carried this league for so long. Um, I mean, you can go back to the beginning of this and it all starts with Cheryl Swoop, Cynthia Cooper, Tina Thompson, um, Nikki Teasley, some, some of the greats really that, um, and the, those women who built the league are all black and where have we seen them, you know? And so there really has been a lack of exposure on that front. And, and that's, that was something that was 
really important to me um, in this cover and, and in general as I move forward in the coverage uh, at Slam for sure. What's the feedback been like? People have been giving you props? What's going on? It's been exciting. Everyone's been really uh, happy and excited. I, I think I, I feel like for me, I try to not let the feedback, I try to stay even feel because <laughs> You know, it's it's like putting your art into the world, yeah. right? You know, there were so many of us that were a part of this, but it was it's been my baby for two years, W Slam as a whole, and then now this magazine. So it was really scary. I, I think it's been pretty positive. I've been so grateful for everyone's feedback, including your own, including so many people across the national media um, world that have been wanting to cover and do something on it. Because um, it's it's again nothing. I didn't come into the job this job knowing this was gonna what I was gonna end up doing, and it's been such a blessing to be able to be a part of it. I'm so grateful that everyone in the space um, has something to to really put on their walls and physically hold. I think that was, again, and I said it in my opening note um, in the magazine, mm. I just wanted something that young girls across America could rip the pages off and put on their wall and really be like, I aspire to be that. The same way that, you know, Kevin Durant did with the punk section way back and, and so many great NBA players. Like, you know, I just want this to be that for the future of women's basketball. That's a great goal. Last question I'll ask you. What are you looking forward to in the playoffs this year? Is there any particular storyline you're following? There's a lot, but you know, at the end of the day, you're still a fan. So what do you, what do you, what are you hoping is coming up? You know, I think this is Connecticut's year. Um, okay. I think I, I just, I, it's crazy. Cause I'm actually doing some of the research now as we start prepping for our playoffs coverage. And I'm looking at these stat lines and I'm like, they're at the top of every defensive scoring. They're at the top of every offensive. I mean, John Carl Jones is one of the most, I, I it, it's crazy to me that there hasn't been more coverage on her because she is just a one of a kind player. Like it's just, her game is beautiful to watch. And so I'm really excited to see Connecticut's run. I feel like they, you know, it's culminated in this and I'm really excited to see Vegas, hopefully back in the finals as well. A team that wasn't full, fully at full power last year um, in their finals run in their first finals run. Um, and I know Bill has that squad ready to, to make a, a far run this year. And lastly, I'm really excited for a lot of the young players that made their first playoff. Yeah. So um, the, including our three cover stars, um, I'm very excited to see Enrique in the, her first playoff. Same with Benaja. Diamond's been there before, but I think this team um, is more, I, I would say, better and prepared for a longer playoff run. So, yeah, I'm just very excited to see a lot of the young faces um, making a name for themselves in, in these playoffs. She's Camille Buxita. She's W Slams everything. She's doing a great job. Thank you for joining us. She's also a very busy lady. Trust me on that. <laughs> Appreciate you. And seriously, thank you so much for having me. Black History Always, the podcast.
You spoke to us. Now we'll speak to you. Here's Talkback. If you've been on social media in the past month, it's guaranteed you've heard the name Gabby Petito. An influencer who was on a cross-country road trip with her fiancé, she lost contact with her family and the authorities confirmed that her body was found this week in Wyoming. That's according to the FBI. It's not exactly clear if her fiancé is a suspect, but the two were part of the van life movement, a popular recreational subculture in which, basically, white folks live out of vans and go anywhere they want across the country and document it for their followers. How does this apply to us here at Black History Always? It's pretty simple. Petito, a 22-year-old blonde-haired woman from Long Island, became a national phenomenon when she went missing. This matters to us because it's an example of how simply being black can disenfranchise girls from the same protections we provide many others. Thousands of humans, never mind women, not to mention black and brown girls, go missing a year. I can't remember hearing about any of them at the same level as Petito. Not even close. Maria Schiavocampo, an Emmy-winning journalist, explained what she calls missing white woman syndrome on CNN 